These days, my toddler daughter is starting to get a grasp on colors. Lelo is her go-to, but she's getting red and blue and green. It's a weird thing for me, though, because color just seems so abstract. I feel almost like a fraud trying to teach her to impose strict categories on something so rich and varied as color. Like, I'll ask, what color is this? And I know technically the right answer is green, but in my head I'm like, but are we really using the same word for this green as for another green? Like, they're different. Does it even make sense to her that these colors actually belong together? That they should belong together? In English, there are 11 basic color terms. Black, white, gray, red, green, blue, yellow, pink, orange, purple, and brown. But how do we actually test a claim like that? Well, one approach is to use these standardized color chips, little one-inch square cards that are precise combinations of hue and lightness and other parameters. Just imagine like the color swatches you get when you're thinking of painting your house. So get a couple hundred of those swatches, all technically different colors, and just ask people, what color is this? Then you can see what do most people say for each of these hundreds of chips, plot out the full color space, and you see these neat little borders appear on a map, a cluster of colors reliably called pink, another cluster reliably called green, and so on. So maybe all you have to do is translate these 11 terms into another language, play the same game again and throughout the world, people are carving the color space up into the same parts. Or maybe not. Professor Debbie Robertson at the University of Essex and her colleagues have done this in different parts of the world. For example, in the early 2000s, they set out to see how culture shapes color perception by studying the Himba, a semi-nomadic population in northern Namibia. They brought the same color swatches and played the same game as they did with folks in the UK, but the color map that resulted from the Himba was different. Here, there were five color terms at the root of people's responses. One of those words covered a variety of dark colors, including black, dark green, and blue. Another word covers colors that overlap with what English speakers would call green, blue, and purple. All of this is to say that you can't just translate the English word blue into Himba and call it a day. The color naming system has different borders entirely. But okay, p potato, potato, right? This is color we're talking about. It's everywhere. And the wavelengths of light don't care what language you speak. We're perceiving the same world, right? Well, what if it's not that simple? Here's where I think these studies get super interesting. Robertson's team also played memory games with English and Himba speakers. They used 40 different color swatches, and for each turn in the game, they would hold up just one color for a few seconds, take it away, and then 30 seconds later, show all 40 colors. The game is to pick out which color you saw 30 seconds ago. It's a tough game, because there are a lot of colors and they vary only minimally, so people make mistakes. But what kind of mistakes? If color is color is color, then I'll make mistakes randomly along the true spectrum of color. But if how I'm thinking about colors is wrapped up in the words I have for them, then if I saw a swatch I'd call blue, I'm more likely to misremember having seen a different color that I would also call blue. 
I'm not going to mistake it for one that I'd call green. That's in a whole separate category. But remember, one of the Himba's basic color terms includes colors that English speakers call blue and colors that English speakers call green. So for Himba participants, it might be only natural to mistake blue for green because for them, those colors live in the same category. And that's essentially what they find. People's guesses in the memory game follow patterns that align more closely with how their language draws borders throughout the color space, compared to how another language names colors. They've tested this idea in a bunch of other clever ways too, which I would love to talk about, but <laughs> we don't need to get into the weeds. The real point here is that the words we get from our language can play a central role in how we mentally process the world around us, which can make for some fundamental differences in how people who speak different languages think. You're listening to Opinion Science, the show about our opinions, where they come from, and how they change. And just as our language sets us up to experience color differently, it can also set us up to form different opinions about important issues. To understand how, I'm excited to share my conversation with Dr. Efren Perez. He's a professor of political science and psychology at UCLA, where he studies the political attitudes and behaviors of racial and ethnic groups in the U.S., and in a new book with Dr. Margit Tavitz, Efren summarizes the work they've done testing the unique effects of language on public opinion. Would a Spanish speaker, Russian speaker, and Swedish speaker come to the same opinion on an issue if they had all the same knowledge and experience? Maybe not. The book is called Voicing Politics, How Language Shapes Public Opinion, and I really enjoyed reading it. It does a nice job of summarizing some basic theoretical premises in political psychology uh, and layering in these really intriguing effects of language, which they test with both careful experiments and big analyses of public opinion around the world. Definitely check it out if this is up your alley. But today, let's get a taste by seeing how the way your language incorporates gender, the status your language has in the society you live in, the way you use one language or another to engage in certain parts of your life, how all of that might be quietly influencing the way you think about political questions. I don't know if I told you where I saw the book, how I knew about it originally. I think on Twitter I saw someone had posted a photo they took of the Princeton University Press booth. I think it like American Political Science. That was recently, oh, I think, ish. Oh, okay, okay. And I saw there in the corner this book with a title that I was like, that sounds incredible. <laughs> that sounds like right up my alley. And yeah. so I looked into it and I looked into you and I sort of – I think it's interesting because as far as I can tell – this work on language fits into your broader research program, but it isn't like central, like it isn't like the thing that that you study. So I'm curious just to kind of get your take to get started, like where is this interest in language coming from and how does it fit into the bigger picture of the stuff that you do? Yeah, so I mean, the, the reality is that I started off doing research on language from a largely methodological perspective, right? So, you know, are we capturing 
um, you know, comparable constructs across different languages. And I think I published like maybe two or three pieces in, in methodology journals. And the long and short of it was, you know, we need more effective translations, uh, sort of a, a bit more thoughtful and careful sort of uh, pilot work in a sense, right? And, and that was it, but you know, I, I was left with, the, with this sort of um, this, this sense that like, okay, so we can, we can make um, or design um, survey questions that perform better. And so if language is still affecting them, what, what is it, right? What, it, what does it boil down to? So, so you were doing some work on translation to begin with, right? So like, was that because it was just like, oh, I want, I'm interested in methods and survey design, and so I want to do that? Or was this like an actual challenge that you were facing to ask the kinds of questions that you wanted to ask? A little bit of both. One of my substantive areas um, as a political scientist is uh, Latino politics, and in particular, Latino public opinion. And so one of the things that, um, you know, as polling took off, for this particular population, especially, um, you had sort of a collective effort to to really put uh, our best uh, foot forward as far as data quality, et cetera. And there were all these sort of benchmarks that were being hit, you know, probability-based sampling, um, making sure that, that the samples were as widely reflective of the major national origin groups, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the one thing that was sort of like not as, as, as heavily invested in was the piloting and the pretesting. It wasn't that it was zero. It was that it rested on a very, I think, common assumption among a lot of survey researchers, which is, look, we all have PhDs. We know how to measure attitudes. If we, if we have a, a handful of individuals, maybe two or three, um, look at both versions and they, they, and it passes muster, we're good to go. And that, that didn't make sense to me. And it's really weird because the reason it didn't make sense to me had to do with my own experience being a primary, uh, like Spanish is my first language. And I could tell people, I remember using the story that the Ephraim that you get in uh, family settings, um, which are largely Spanish dominant, um, you know, you're going to get a guy with a different, slightly different set of, 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 of thoughts, not so much in kind, but in intensity. And you can contrast that with the academic me, where I would say 90 to 80 percent of my world is in English. And so, you know, I, I think I started off with a very sort of narrow thought, which is how effective were the translations and what can we do um, when when they don't meet certain um um, assumptions. And so that's how it started off, you know, and it was primarily as a way to do research in one of the areas that at least people were telling me I had gotten the job for, right, which was the, the study of uh, Latino public opinion. Uh, but then it just sort of it expanded in large part because of my collaboration with, with Margaret. And, you know, the funny thing is, it, it, it ended up forcing me to draw on a lot of my training uh, as a political psychologist. So a lot of the stuff on Latino politics is sort of like much in much lower relief. And a lot of the training as a political psychologist, you know, models of survey response, um, automatic controlled processes, et cetera, came to the fore. Um, and that was sort of cool because 
you know, starting off as as a as a trainee um, in political psychology, you know, I had my doubts, you know, like about whether I was going to finish, whether I was going to get a job primarily. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it felt like a project that could help me earn my keep, um, so to speak. And so, you know, I think the main lesson is it takes a while. You know, we didn't we didn't start off with with everything on the table, um, especially in terms of domains, especially in terms of mechanisms. It was sort of like, let's let's try and and let's let's see if, we, if, if there's something interesting. And it, it has sort of worked for us in the long haul. But, you know, that trajectory has um, a lot of zigs and a lot of zags. And you're catching me <laughs> at the, at, at sort of on one of the peak ends. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's it's. You're speaking to sort of like the annoying thing about language is that it's not just like a recipe card that you can just convert from grams to ounces, right? Like, yeah. like that would be so nice if I could just go like, oh, we'll just translate it and everything, the meaning stays the same and I just use the right words and then that's what we do. Uh, but my, my newest sort of favorite paper that I came across recently, I do a lot of stuff in moral psychology and there's this cross-cultural work trying to figure out like what is the content of morality in the US and what is the content of morality in China? Uh, in you know Western and Eastern worlds, whatever. But like, you cannot ask that question without the assumption that like I'm asking the same question <laughs> to both sure. groups. Um, and if I'm not, and I get different answers, I don't really know why. Like, did I just say what's a pie, and you told me what a pie was? But I meant to ask you what's a cake, and I went look at how they think about cake over there, or whatever. Sure. Uh, sure. And so that sort of brings us into the work on language, right? Like it's not so simple, but it could have a really deep impact on the way people think. This, uh, I've never known how to say it, Sapir-Whorf? Oh, Sapir-Whorf, yeah. Sapir-Whorf. That was like in college, I, that was like my, my brain explode moment. I was like, that's so cool. <laughs> and I was so bummed <laughs> in grad school to come across references to like, oh, nobody thinks that way yeah, anymore, no, that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. So, no. Can, can, can you trace kind of the historical legacy of what you were about yeah, to talk well, about? You know, at first, you know, when I encountered that, I think I had the same reaction as you, um, which was, man, this is this is so intuitively on point. Um, I think one of the things that training in graduate school does for you is um, help you to be not just skeptical, but to maybe ask for stronger evidence than what might qualify as strong evidence for the for the average Joe, right? Um, and so, you know, re- reading um, all of the damage control um, in light of, you know, people trying to either disconfirm or show how weak or not this claim that language determines how you think. I mean, the main thing that jumped out at me is that if you really look at it closely, it's a very ham-fisted sort of proposition, right? It's it's not only hard to to falsify in many ways if you read sort of closely their work, but there's very little sense about underlying process, mechanisms, conditions under which. And so that's where a lot of the, you know, your training as a political psychologist, probably as a cognitive scientist comes in. And I think one of the things that we have to wrestle with in beginning the work is how not to be misinterpreted as um, language basically structures everything you do. And this is why the angle of the book is precisely on survey response. No one is, that studies public opinion in your discipline, my discipline, would say that um, you know what we have to offer in terms of how people generate attitudes, 
how strong they are, et cetera, et cetera, that we have very little to say or that it's very deterministic. And in fact, the lesson is basically look at how malleable these things are because we're adaptive creatures. And so I think one of the reasons that we also like the, the angle of looking at this from a, you know, cognitive and effective sort of perspective is that, you know, I think it sort of benchmarks your expectations about what you should expect, you know, and this sort of comes out in the book as far as these aren't like eye-opening sort of uh, effects that you're seeing. And the effects are on opinion reports, right? Not on what pe how people behave, not on, a, a, you know, other things that people might expect sort of larger, larger effects. And for us, that was a bit reassuring, right? Like when we were when we're trying to diagnose, like, did we do something wrong? Is this is this a little bit too 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 much? <laughs> um, you know, regardless of domain, where you know, and then again, these are average effects. The average effects are in the world of like eight to around twelve percentage points. So meaningful, sizable, also in line with I think the accumulated record on a lot of opinion research, right? Given some variability. And so that, you know, like, I think I would like people uh, uh, to read our book um, kind of as an attempt to start rehabilitating some of the research that you mentioned by Sapir and Warp. You know, if you really view this as a collective enterprise, um, the way I do, then, you know, I remember an instructor in graduate school teaching us, look, the way to view it is like everyone's building a mousetrap, right? And relative to others, you might have a little bit more spring in your mousetrap. And, but it's sort of like, it's very incremental. And, and so like the way to view it is less that, I mean, the book is not about how language determines, it's more, how can language affect a very bread and butter aspect of the social sciences, which is opinion formation and expression. And that's sort of the contribution in many ways. Either the way we have a variety of, of either uh, variables that we manipulate, moderators or mediators. Um, I mean, that that literature on survey response is just rich in that. And I think that the contribution is here is another situational feature that shows you how humans are adaptive in their responses, in this case to politics, right? Because it's not even all domain. It's a very sort of relatively narrow domain. Like, yes, we're looking at opinions in different realms, but overall we're talking about politics. I think that's sort of the contribution. So, you know, the, the I think it's like, yeah, we owe some of our lineage to some of the work that first came and also to some of the critics that that brought down some of those claims. But I think what often gets lost um, when you're not part of those debates is like, look, you, we have a tendency to talk past each other for a variety of, you know, perfectly <laughs> uh, sensical reasons, which is you're very invested in your work. You're very invested in your ideas. But guess what? Like you guys can actually both be right and we can still say some new things without necessarily having to throw shade at the, <laughs> at the original hypothesis generators or the ones that might have, you know, some other way of showing or providing evidence against um, the influence of language. So that was it. You know, like I will say, like, I think you'll understand this uh, given your training as a social psychologist, but a lot of the work on linguistics is not sort of directly translatable to the kinds of things that you and I sort of barter in, you know, how people think about very abstract 
um, realities that they have very little contact with, right? And so that's also a contribution, right? And, and so one way to view it is, well, if we found evidence that language can affect your generation and expression of opinions, that's really only because we looked sort of like in the right place at the right time relative to what has been done before. So it doesn't mean it matters all the time. It doesn't mean um, it will always matter in politics. The virtue of the book, I think, is here are some of the conditions under which you might find these kinds of relationships. But uh, for me and, and someone that does uh, work in, in surveys and creating instrumentation, I think sort of the, the bigger deal is language is not just an administrative variable, right, that you record about. Did they interview in English? Did they interview in Spanish? Etc. And so that's that to me is like that that that's good, cool, right? You can you have sort of a variable that's taken for granted, and you give it a, you inject it a little bit with some substantive theory about it. And I hope that that's sort of what people take take away from from our book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I like the the idea that that you're finding not that language determines these sorts of things, like it is like the critical thing, but that it is nudging, right? It's shaping yeah. and sort of pushing. Um, and the other thing is, it's not just this nuisance interview factor. It's not just this like oh annoying thing that I have to keep in mind when I go out and do my interviews. Like it may actually have like a psychologically important impact on the way people think, which. All of this has been very abstract <laughs> up until this point. So I think maybe to give people like a clearer sense of like, what is it that you mean that language can shape opinion? I think that the gender example is like a very easy one to latch on to. So like, what is the idea here that that language that we speak would have anything to do with the way we think about gender? Sure. I mean, the way to view it is, uh, the first thing is, it's not that language is leading people to express different attitudes. <laughs> Because then that would defeat the whole purpose of the scientific enterprise. You have to compare apples to apples, right? So they are expressing attitudes toward the same object or phenomenon to varying degrees. And that variance is related to very specific features of the language that you may speak. You mentioned the example of gender. Languages vary on a continuum as far as how much of its grammar obliges you to make distinctions, to notice the genderedness of objects. So in Spanish, if I want to say the moon, I actually have to say la luna with the definite article la saying is denoting that it's a female moon. Now I take it for granted it's just the moon, but the reality is it's a female moon. In English, we have pronouns, but we, you know, the moon is the moon. It's not male or female. So the idea here is that the more gendered a language is, the more it sensitizes you to things that other language speakers, it's sort of like part of part of the background. It's not, it's not that these people don't see gender, they don't see men or women. Their language just simply highlights it a little bit more or a little bit less. And because of that, the sample of considerations that you bring to bear to form an opinion is likely to have gender be relatively more salient so that it has you know this downstream influence on what you report and so that's the that's the general idea right if your if your language is as you said nudging you to pay attention to some features then it's not really a random draw of content from memory that you're sampling it's sort of it's it's the random draw plus 
whatever nudge your language may give you. Now, of course, there's all these other features that are extensively documented, right, that can affect survey response. You know, if you're talking to a computer versus a person, et cetera, et cetera. The point here is, you know, with the experiments, you're able to show that the language of the interview is, might be one of them, not that it's the only one. <laughs> um, and so that's, that's generally the idea where I think previous work got hung up on and probably still is, uh, a little bit hung up on, uh, you know, notwithstanding the efforts of some new generations of cognitive scientists, is this idea that basically if you speak a different language, you see a different reality. And it's like, well, that's then how are you going to compare them if they're seeing different <laughs> things? Um, that's kind of odd. I think it, it, you, it makes better sense to put people, quote unquote, on the same scale and then seeing whether their their ideas or in this case their their preferences or attitudes uh toward a political object vary because of the of the of the the soft touch that their language sort of gives them or does not give them. Mm -hmm. it took, I, as i was reading about this work it reminded me of this story i was in a cafe in madrid years ago and i needed to log into the wi-fi and so i asked in spanish for the wi-fi password and, and then i paused because i was like wait is is it L Wi-Fi or La Wi-Fi? And the woman in the cafe was like, uh, I don't know. And then asked her, and it was like this thing where it was never a formal consideration. And yet I, I learned later that like generally new technologies are masculine uh, when they sort of enter a language. But it's one of those things that like the gendered nature of this language is just so persistent that it's invisible, right? Like to uh, like direct observation, it's invisible. And yet... Like if you're living a life where your language masculinizes new technology, like that's going to at some point <laughs> shape the way you think about technology and gender and things that are happening. Um, and so I think it's really interesting that, that essentially I think if I understand right that what you're finding is just that like if the language that I'm 24-7 living and breathing orients my attention to the gender of things, then when I'm thinking about gender issues in my society – or just just things in general in my society, like gender becomes just one of those things that I quite easily bring to bear on that question um, in a way. And this is the thing that freaked me out is that there are languages out there that don't do this, right? That like, uh, if, if I'm not constantly attending to the gender of things, then when I am asked that same question, gender doesn't even really seem like a relevant consideration, right? And so like, here's where I want to get nuts and bolts, because as you say, the, the problem is, is I could just go to a Spanish-speaking country, ask a bunch of questions, go to an English-speaking or a, a country that speaks a language that does not use gender as frequently, ask the questions. But here I'm confounding a whole bunch of things, right, at the same time. Like, sure, these people are speaking different languages, but they also have different upbringings. They have different this and the different that. Um, so to get around that, could you speak a little bit to, like, what the experiments you do did yeah. to actually show, like, no, no, no. The language itself, that's all you need to know, to know how people are going to respond to these kinds of questions. Yeah, so the, where we had to start with this was we needed to start in a place that not only had a bilingual population, that is, could, could in, in principle, they speak both, let's say in this case, a gendered language and a genderless language, and also is not this sort of narrow boutique population, right? That you can't sort of um, generalize from. And so we could have started in the US and sort of sampled bilinguals within my own ethnic community, but 
Market is actually Estonian. My co-author is Estonian. And actually, the I think the way she started, uh, you know, getting into this project was precisely her experience being as a, an Estonian Russian bilingual. Turns out Estonian is a very genderless language. Uh, he or she is referred to with the same sort of word. There is no distinction. Russian is a highly gendered language, sort of akin to Spanish. And then their bilingual population is by no means boutique. It's sort of about almost like 40% of, of the Estonian nation. So yes, Estonia is a small country, but the people that we were sampling are sort of workaday in many ways, right? Like this isn't this isn't some sort of like really special <laughs> So that's where we started. Um, and, you know, there, we went back and forth on exactly like how should we um, try to get at language, right? Because you could say in some ways that really language is an indicator of, of culture. And it's and, and culture means, according to some individuals, the ethnic groups that you sort of belong to. So that is possible. But then you're starting off with a story that needs an additional sort of crutch, an additional sort of assumption, right, that there has to be sort of some uh, intergroup sort of dynamic in a way. It's like, well, is that our story? Like, no, not if we're doing sort of the belief sampling stuff, right? Like this is, it's a little bit more fundamental. It's a little bit one step before that. So we finally agreed that the way we were going to do this was random assignment of the language of interview, right? So in a typical survey, um, the way this happens is in a typical survey, an individual gets called on the phone, gets an invitation online, has a much rare these days, has a person show up to their front door. Um, and you you basically get to choose the language that you interview in. You self-select. Now, we could actually take one of these massive surveys that we do have about Latinos, and actually we do, I think, in the paper, and you could say, well, I can compare the individuals that, it, that decided to interview in English to those that decided to interview in Spanish, and I have some hypotheses about what kinds of opinions it should affect. Um, and then people say, well, yeah, but, you know, like, English speakers and Spanish speakers are so different, right? Like, for one... An English speaker is more likely to have been U.S. born or later, and a Spanish speaker is more likely to be foreign born. So it's not really language. It's that you're comparing the immigrants to their children or grandchildren. So those surveys have the ability to base. We have a, a bunch of additional data that we collect on them, and we can control for these individual differences. The challenge always in these analyses is that you could potentially over control, <laughs> right? You're including stuff in there that, you know, you're just trying to assuage your critic, but it probably doesn't belong in the actual regression, right? Predicting um, an opinion on the basis of language of interview, holding constant, all these other differences. The other part is we can't measure everything in a survey, um, especially as surveys start getting shorter. And so it's quite possible that we fail to control for the right things, right? This is like a very sort of tough nut to crack. So this is where the experiments sort of come in. This is where sort of the, the, the uh, social psych, political psych side of things come in. You know, you can exact strong control over the stimulus of interest, right? And so what is it? In this case, is we want the language of interview. So if we can randomly assign people, in this case, Estonian bilinguals, to interview in either one of their languages, then they are going to be comparable in all respects chance variations aside, 
And we can attribute with some confidence that any observed opinions um, that they report are attributed to, to the fact that they interviewed in either Estonian or uh, in, in Russian. And sort of that was, that, that's been sort of the, the, the main takeaway, right? To try to find populations that in, in most cases that are bilingual, but that are not necessarily boutique, right? Because, you know, people will have debates about, well, bilinguals are just a rare population or, you know, I, I sort of take umbrage at that. It's like, are you trying to say that I'm weird? I mean, like most people <laughs> know me through English, but I would say my personal life is 100% in Spanish, right? And so I would say like, I don't know, man, there's like, there's a lot of us just in Los Angeles that are, um, you know, Spanish preference and probably interview in a, in a certain language and appear to be monolingual on these surveys, but they're by no means um, boutique, right? Um, and so that's sort of been like sort of the, the angle that we've, we've taken. We've also sort of, after we did a couple of studies with bilingual, we, we, we sort of thought long and hard about, well, can we find some of these language um, effects in monolingual settings? Right. So can, can I actually, can I pause you there for a second and just go back to the bilingual stuff? So just to put a pin on it, the idea is like, uh, I flip a coin and that determines whether I ask you this question in Estonian or Russian. And so like, what do you find? Like you ask a question and you'd go rationally, this shouldn't matter. I'm just translating it, right? Like recipe cards. I'm just going ounces to grams. You should give me the same answer. But what what's actually happening? Like, what do you see people saying that's different? Yeah, so what you see in general is that relative to the, the person that interviews in the highly gendered language, which is Russian, the individuals who interview in Estonian, the genderless language, are consistently more supportive of efforts to combat or remedy gender imbalances, uh, more likely to support uh, a female defense minister nominee, more likely to support... Um, increasing the number of women to elected office, less likely to have uh, this stereotypical view as be of women as being more emotional than men, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, that particular outcome is important because even before you get to the political stuff, it's happening on strictly or what you could say is much more strictly just cognitive stuff, right? Like you don't have to have an opinion. You just have to tell us about how you, your, your ability to overgeneralize um, these two groups. And so that you know, this is this is sort of what we're finding, and again, we we can say with confidence that it, it's due to the 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 um, the manipulation or the assigned interview. Now, one thing actually that I did want to mention, it, because that might make give you the people the impression that it's sort of really straightforward, honky dory, no problems. But you know, one of the big things that you have to do is okay, finding the the bilingual populations that are not boutique is one thing. But you always run the risk of basically assigning an interview to people that don't speak the language as well as they do, right? So in the case of Estonia, we had to have a strategy to figure out whether people, uh, once they were assigned to a language, were actually reporting to us actual attitudes or just gossamer, right? Um, and so the thinking behind that was, one, we're going to ask them to self-report and we're going to pick the individuals that tell us that they are fluent to highly fluent in both languages. 
The second thing is we have to have, um, you know, a, a, a sort of a monitoring mechanism to see whether people are basically dropping off um, at the stage of the assigned interview, right? You say, you, you say, well, yeah, I'm bilingual. I'm a four and a five. They say, you got an interview in Estonian. Oh, you know, Bye. I forgot <laughs> something on the stove. See you. Um, and, and so that, that didn't happen. But then you're with the challenge, well, how do I know these are opinions rather than just debris? And so there's two ways to view it. One is um, if you set aside statistical significance for a moment, pattern is everything. You know, I mean, are, are you seeing the same directional shift, right? If you look at these items and you look at the inner item correlations, do they hold together more so because they likely people have sort of bounded opinions on these things anyway. They do, right? And so, you know, the, the main, the, when we used to present this, you know, separately at, at, for different audiences, it was always important to get give people a very firm sense of how do we falsify this thing? Well, it's easy. You're not going to find an effect or you're going to find scattered sort of directions to the coefficients. But when you try to scale some of these items, they're not going to hold. Um, you know, they're sort of diagnostic to figure out how much there is there. And so that's been sort of a very standard um, sort of approach, mostly when we're dealing with with uh, bilingual populations. It's a lot less hectic when you're dealing with with uh, monolinguals, sort of raises other challenges. But um, yeah, that's it's it's it. The, the experiments are parsimonious is what I'm going to say, but there's a lot of heavy lifting on the front end and thinking through, you know, possible pitfalls that are, you know, things that you learn about in terms of survey design, but then things you learn about in terms of the populations that you study, right? And so I maybe that's part of why it took us as many years as it did to to do the stuff that we were doing. You know, there was always sort of the fear that like, we're, we're, we can really mess this one up in part because there's not a lot of standard guidance, you know, like if you look at the work in cognitive science, really clever experiments, I find them convincing. My political science colleagues, unlikely to be convinced by convenient samples of less than 100 people, right? So it's just like, uh, you know, if our audience is sort of more in this direction, we have to give them evidence that is legible to them. I think it's pretty cool stuff, pretty clever stuff. I ask my colleagues, they're like, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I want to go back to the thing you said about um, are we capturing opinions or just debris, which I think is such a lovely way to frame <laughs> that that dilemma. And, you know, when you say debris in that context, I think you kind of mean, is it or is it just random error and people are just sort of like confused in another language and they sort of spew nonsense. But another way to think about it that I was wondering when I was reading about the work was like how much of this is – a response bias, a consistent and reliable response bias. And how much of it really is like, no, these are the stable attitudes that people draw upon. Um, and part of me thought that a lot of these findings probably come from folks who haven't already considered the issues very deeply. And, you know, as we know about like ideology, right? Like plenty of people have, don't, don't really think about their ideology, but among those who do, they have quite stable senses of their political preferences. In the same way, like a ardent, gender rights activist probably is insensitive to the language, right? They just go like, I know exactly what I think is wrong and what I think is right. Um, and But I didn't get a sense. Like in the data, do you have any way to 
parse that out? Does that strike you as relevant? Or do you go, no, even, even those with the most solidified attitudes yeah. would be subject to a bias sure. in the language yeah. they interview in? All of this is like, it's so, it, it's actually, it's, you're, you're a great host because you're, you're hitting me right where, where I like it, man. <laughs> so here is uh, the thing, like, this is where a, a nice marriage between psychology and political science. I think one of the things that political science sensitizes social scientists in general is that um, politics might be exciting to people like you and I, because we do this for a living, but it's a side circus for most people, right? And the extensive literature on belief sampling, at least in the political science side of things, is that on most things political, people don't have their mind made up, which is why these situational features of the interview context can matter so much. So that being said, the psychology uh, research and the psychology side of me also knows that there are a number of moderators to, you know, your stimulus of interest. Um, and in, and I, I wouldn't think that uh, interview language um, is no different. So. Because of how the project started out, you know, we we were in a position to basically try to say this can matter for public opinion. So if you if you did read closely and you follow the research design, they're all designed to test for average effects, the direct effects, uh, with the exception of one experiment or, or set of experiments that we did in Sweden. And so we could look for you know moderating influences ex post but a lot of those studies are going to be severely underpowered once we sort of start um, tinkering with that now i have a better answer for you it's not in the book but um it's part of uh we're still doing research on on language and political cognition in the lab and actually, I recruited a graduate student two years ago who has been working since he started in the psychology program, a paper on uh, the role of cognitive sophistication, right, or need for cognition. And what we found is we, we did design a study where it was uh, Latino bilingual adults. It was a, it was a, a, a straightforward, uh, very close to the Estonian experiment that, I, that we, did, we talked about except the treatment is basically a, a metaphor is embedded in the language, right? So like, do you get a metaphor in English or Spanish? And when we look at the, like, if you look at the main effects, it, you find the same evidence that we've been discussing uh, in these other settings. The more gendered your language relative to a person that interviews in a genderless tongue, the more conservative your opinions about gender relations. So we find that. But what we also find is that the effect is much more pronounced among people with lower need, need for cognition. That is, individuals who are essentially, I would say, generally on autopilot when they're in, in, in a survey response setting, right? They're not going to invest too hard. It doesn't mean they're dumb. It just means like they, they don't have that tendency or that need to really investigate the information that they're getting. And the good thing about need for cognition, it's not political, but it gives you a really, I think, clean sense about where most of the mass public in the U.S. and in other places really is when it comes to politics, which is 
Uh, I might pay attention come election time. I'll try to pay some attention when you pull me, but please don't ask me to report who the prime <laughs> minister is, who you know the member of Congress is, etc. And so that you know that that's in some ways it's um, it's affirming of the book that we did. You know what else am I going to say? But it's affirming in another way. It shows you how you know different research streams. In this case, the work on need for cognition and persuasion also has implications for how this situational feature of the survey response might might matter, right? Uh, and matter in perfectly predictable, extensively documented um, ways. And so, you know, that sort of that paper is is out there in cyberspace somewhere right now. Uh, but you know, it's sort of been things that we didn't get to do by design in in the studies themselves. So it's less sort of theoretical preference and more look, we're trying to get this, you know, at a, at a book press where, you know, some eyeballs will see it. And right now the big sort of skepticism is, I don't know, that language can matter, right? That's sort of how we started off in this project. But yeah, I mean, the decision making, just that we confined ourselves to politics is, is so heterogeneous that I think it would be bizarre for both of us to say, like, no, no moderators, <laughs> no mitigating circumstances. Everybody is the same. <laughs> yeah, no, no way, no way. I mean, like, you know, we, 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 we've tried in the book to basically show, like, not only to say, like, look, no one is, it's not determining, that's one. But the second one is these, these are essentially on average, and averages hide or can hide some heterogeneity, right? In this case, the, the heterogeneity that I just finished describing uh, the the effects get relatively stronger among the people that pay, are less likely to pay attention to politics consistently, right? So in some ways, you could view that as language helping some people <laughs> to make decisions that some folks might consider normatively appealing, right? Uh, I love that, as you can imagine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so part of the book and the work that you've done in this area is looking at these sort of like structural features of language. Um, but there's a whole other part of the importance of language that seems really compelling as well, which is like, it's sort of the way I organize where my information comes from and lives, right? So you have this cool stuff about like, politics may be the kind of thing that lives in the majority language of whatever country you're in. And so when you're interviewing in that language, you're sort of a little more checked in to your political views. Whereas when you're the same person, but interviewing in a language that's a minority language in that country, you just have slower access to sort of your political sense of things. Um, could you sort of unpack that a little bit and just sort of yeah. like basically say, did I get that right or wrong? And like, what is the idea there? Yeah, so the idea here is is an extension of the the same sort of belief sampling uh, mechanism that is is threaded throughout the book. You know, for belief sampling is essentially for people that don't know is again you don't have ready made opinions on most things political, but what you do have are the raw ingredients, and essentially lots of features of the survey context, including the questions that you get. Um, direct your attention to what goes together so that you can express an opinion. So one of the things that um, cognitive scientists teach us is that essentially um, people are really good at learning 
um, about objects and their surroundings on the basis of language. And sort of they tag these, these memories of these objects with language. And so you can think of it as, you know, it's sort of like a very blunt way to organize long-term memory. You have sort of a, a stuff I learned in English, stuff I learned in Spanish. Um, and when you integrate that new information to memory, well, guess what? It gets lumped in with all of the other stuff that was also tagged in English initially. So the way this matters um, in many settings, but since we're talking with, you know, we did these studies in the U.S., you as a, as a, as a person who may speak another language besides English, let's say Spanish, you are likely to learn about the political world in very concrete and formalized terms in English, you know, the Pledge of Allegiance, basic civic facts. Um, Spanish, not so. Um, and, you know, lots of great lit literary greats sort of talk about, you know, English being the, the, the public language for uh, Mexican-Americans like myself and Spanish being sort of the private language, the language of home. But that has implications for what gets put in the bin. So one of the things that we that um, some of my earlier work had um, done was to show that if for Latinos who interview in English relative to those who interview in Spanish, they are likely to know more facts correctly about U.S. politics. You know, how much of a majority does it take to overturn uh, a presidential veto? Things like that. And, you know, the, the argument is, well, you know, you learn that stuff most likely in English, right? I mean, you get taught about it in civics courses, less likely in Spanish. And so, yes, it's a very coarse distinction, but one that is, you know, fairly extensively documented outside of the U.S. context and by people that are not political scientists. So we ran these studies, these experiments, where we were trying to see if we would get the same effect. But the one thing that the survey analyses that we had done before could not show is, well, can we also account for the fact that people learn about stuff in these different languages? Then sort of kind of hard to tease, like how much do we attribute to their reporting? So what we did is we took a large samples of Latino individuals in the U.S., and we randomly assigned them to a study where they were going to learn um, about a person running for Congress. Now, they learned later that this person was hypothetical, but that's not what, what how the study was framed. The study was framed was essentially, we're running the study for you to give us feedback on the individual that you're going to read about. The background on the individual, the name of the individual was identical except for the language that was used. So in English, the person is named David Marin. In Spanish, the person is David Marin, right? This person is someone who was born um, and raised in Texas, had a decorated military career, came back and was thinking about running for Congress, etc. That was it. We didn't tell you he's ideologically right of center, he's a Republican, none of that. So there's an opportunity for people to learn and sort of do some patchwork. And so what we found when we asked them their attitudes, some of them were actually factual, right? Like they were in the actual um, in the in the actual vignette that they read. We found that, for example, relative to those who were assigned to interview in Spanish, Latinos who were assigned to interview in English, 
reported not only more facts that were U.S.-based about the person they read about, but also facts that are about the U.S., but that were not in the vignette. They also rated more positively institutions like the military, which was in the vignette, but other institutions that are also considered to be the purview of the, the right of center of politics that were not in the vignette, right? And this was independent of the language in which they interviewed him, right? So part of the story here is uh, the more general language context that you're in can, can affect what you bring from memory. Again, in these standard belief sampling uh, models, it's often assumed that it's sort of like a random draw, right? Like if there's a stimulus and then I go search long-term memory and, it, and if, if the question peaks or activates one thing, it's gonna activate related things. But what we're showing with these studies and this one in particular is that it's a fairly uneven process. A language can give you relatively more privileged access, right, to some of the content and memory. And so that to me is, is pretty cool because there it, the, the, the focus of the study was not, you know, give us your opinions. It was give us your evaluation of someone that's thinking about running for office, right? And you not only find, you know, evidence that suggests language plays a role, but you're also finding that language helps people sort of fill in the gaps where they don't have something ready-made. And so that was like, that was one of the the the, the cool things, you know. Was one of the those the the study itself, where you know I had gotten grant money to do this, and then I thought, you know, this is actually could be part of the of, of the book, right? Because it's still consistent with everything that we, we we're saying. So we basically decided to use it as a as a test of of a slightly different aspect of survey response, right? And how belief sampling can sort of affect that. And just to to go back and make sure that I'm remembering and getting you right. So part of this design is like you present information that as long as I have some familiarity with American politics, I'm likely to infer this person is more conservative, right? Um, But you never say it, right? You don't say this is a conservative, but you go like, if I understand American politics, I will have a good guess that this person is conservative. And you're finding that if I just happen to interview in English, I make that connection quite easily. But if I happen to get all the same information, but I'm interviewed in Spanish, right, as if you're someone that sort of has come to politics through English, even though you speak Spanish just as well, this is a situation for which you're just slower to draw the connection between this person's identifiers and and the politics they're likely to have. Yeah, which is just – and it's so indirect, right? That's just what's so so clean about it, right, is you go – there's no other reason why it would be a difference in the inference – Unless you just had this roadblock in between that that stuff I have. It's in my head. I could I have the key. The key's just written in English. And that's the one I have to put in the lock. Yeah, I mean, like I can't run an experiment on myself, but if you ask me to think about statistics hmm. or T tests hmm. or regressions in Spanish, you're like, oh, it's gonna take me a couple of uh, hours. I'll be I'll get back to you. <laughs> I mean, to, to that point, do you have a sense that, that let's imagine exactly the same sample, something that you would say interviewing in Spanish would provide privileged access to on an opinion survey, just to sort of like flesh out like basic theory wise, it's not just about politics, but it's just about memory sure. and access. 
So I think the I, I we don't have an example of it in the book, but the way to view it is to rerun the same study in in Mexico or mm, in a, yes. a in Latin American country, mm, right? Mm. It would have to be the case that if we are able to adapt the manipulation, which was the description of the candidate, and you can, you know, as you mentioned, um, if if you have more familiarity with Mexican Spanish, you're more likely to know that people with this profile are right of center, left of center, centrist, right? Um, yeah, that's sort of the the, the thing that, that that would need to be done. That'd be very cool. So on that line, the last thing that I wanted to talk to you about is, um, as I was reading, especially you have some very cool data about uh, gender neutral pronouns in parts of the world that have sort of adopted this as more of a regular feature of their language. And it, it did, it raised for me the question of the term Latinx, which kind of vaguely comes up at the end of the book. And then later I was looking at your work and I was like, oh, you've like, you've done this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so as a guy who just is kind of trying to like figure out what is the, what's what's right <laughs> what's what are the right uh, terminologies that have evolved over time i know that you know there have been conversations about like whether this is doing what it's meant to be doing whether it's almost appropriating to sort of mishmash these words around and so what do we know about if we think about language not as the structure of my grammar not as the language i've learned things in but as language we're creating as a way that might shape public opinion what, what is this term doing for us or was, yeah. what isn't it doing for us? So I'll, I'll, I'll talk about, about both of those research projects because they are actually connected. One actually led to the other. Um, the study in, in, that we did on gender pronouns was an attempt, and it's actually a first attempt. There's more work needed on this, but to really drill down on what it is about language more specifically, right, that can kick in sort of this 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 process where you see these differences by language. So in the case of uh, Sweden, what you have is the very common experience where politically um, individuals have organized to essentially say, look, we want to be a more gender inclusive um, sort of polity. Um, and we think that if we use, instead of he and she, we'll use the Swedish version of they. Right, uh, very innocuous, um, but it might be inviting, it might be welcoming. That's sort of what the proponents say. The detractors initially said this, the exact same thing you were describing, which is, um, first of all, this is like, this is like pretend science. <laughs> this doesn't work. <laughs> um, and second, like, quit policing people's language. Well, that controversy basically was settled. Um, when uh, Swedish language authorities made the they version of their pronoun system an official entry, right? So we thought, look, we have an ability to show that in part, some of the language effect has to do with the words themselves. So the first two studies, we took uh, Swedish adults and we randomly assigned them to evaluate in their own words a figure, an androgynous figure that I myself spent about four, four weeks working on in the summer. And this figure looks like the character in Big Hero 6, you know, very lumpy, round, but you don't get a sense of whether they're actually they're man or woman. And in fact, we, we, we assessed that at, at the end of, the, of one of the studies and people rated the figure right at the, at the middle of the scale, neither man nor woman. Okay. 
And so they had a text box where they had to write a few words. What's the figure doing? And the cover story was, look, as a, we want to be able to standardize the data. And on a random basis, you use masculine pronouns to describe feminine pronouns or the genderless pronouns. So the, the long and short of these studies is that relative to those who use a masculine pronoun to characterize this androgynous figure, those that use the genderless pronoun not only had more non-male categories at the top of their head, having more non-male categories at the top of your head had a downstream reliable impact on how supportive you were for more gender equality and how inclusive you were, not only in your feelings, but also your attitudes toward LGBTQ individuals. This was across two studies. We started off with a relatively smaller sample. We didn't know if it was gonna work. Second sample was like four times the size. We find the same thing. We sent this out actually originally as an article. It got rejected, not rejected, sorry. It got invited to revise and resubmit. But one of the criticisms was, well, it seems plausible and you have two studies, so it's not a it's not a replication issue. Um, but I still get the suspicion that people are basically it's a Hawthorne effect, right? You, you're asking them about gender equality. And so they're they're alert to your hypothesis. So we ran a, a third study where we randomly assigned people to use one of the pronoun conditions and to rate the same androgynous figure. And so the analysis there was to show in, in this large sample, we wanted to see whether relative to uh, those who use the masculine pronoun, whether those who used a genderless pronoun rated the figure in the same way, irrespective of whether they were given only 15 seconds or less or just go as they normally do, right? And so we took that as, as, as evidence that it was inconsistent with this idea that um, the responses we were getting were systematically produced by people who knew what we were up to and were just telling us what they wanted, what, what we wanted to hear. And so, you know, the, the other thing that was that, that I, I haven't said much about is this is all happening in one country where they speak the same language. They have the same culture in a global sense. The only thing that's moving here is, did you have to rate Big Hero 6 in uh, using masculine, feminine, or a gender-neutral pronoun? And that is it. And so that just shows you, one, it's nice to get evidence when critics that you disagree with, can you can say, like, I'm not going to say you're wrong, but the <laughs> argument is not carrying water, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I got to say, I I was sort of impressed, not not. <laughs> And the, and, and the size, because it's right in line with what we were finding before, but more that the actual words could, could affect how you were rating, what comes to memory, and how it affects your opinion, right? Um, so how does this relate to Latinx? Okay, Latinx, and there's different ways to tackle it. One is sort of just like sociopolitical. What's happening here is something that we've seen before um, among ethnic groups all over the globe, but in particular, this specific pan-ethnic group, which is Latinos, Hispanics. When this uh, term was first used or actually officially promulgated in the late 70s by the U.S. Census, there was a lot of back and forth about 
how, how much sense does this category mean? I mean, Mexicans are not the same thing as Cubans, as Puerto Ricans. They don't even speak the same language. You know, some only speak English, blah, blah, blah. 30 years later, 40 years later, we take it for granted that um, this ethnic label is not only meaningful, but that it actually shapes people's politics. So look, the, the community has grown a lot since then. And there is something called sort of generational trends and generational shifts. And one of the things that's happened, which is, we can think of as meaning making for an in-group, is uh, some elements within the larger Latino community have, have sort of decided and organized and mobilized themselves to say that part of what should define us as an ethnic group is greater gender inclusivity. That diversity exists within the group. We should just acknowledge it as part of the labels that we use to identify ourselves. And so the X in Latinx is supposed to mean we acknowledge, recognize, and respect um, gender diversity, right? Okay. So there's the same, a very similar controversy as in Sweden. Who the hell cares? Don't <laughs> use it. Don't you? Don't make me use it. And I actually, I don't even think it works. <laughs> so what we did in the last, so this is pretty, this is pretty straightforward. Um, we ran three studies, all with uh, Latino adults, and the only thing that varied is one sample was individuals 25 years and older. Because we thought, like, maybe that's that's not where it's at, or maybe that's where it's at, and, and we just haven't looked. Another sample was 25 years and younger, because we thought, like, maybe it's actually relatively younger people. And then we had a sample through the subject pool um, uh, for my lab, which was Latino UCLA students, right? And because we thought, like, well, maybe it's actually just a higher ed thing, right? Like this is where you're learning about all this stuff. Okay, in each study, if you take it in isolation, you find that like the, the, the makeup of the study was as follows. You were assigned to write what makes a person Latino, Hispanic, or Latinx. And after that uh, open-ended task, you had people provide a variety of opinions, including how they feel about um, gender equality through through really sticky um, uh, policy proposals like gender neutral bathrooms, and also their feelings about um, LGBTQ individuals. So in each study in isolation, we find small, meaningful, but borderline effects. And so the, the takeaway figure in that study on Latinx is you see a positive effect that just barely misses statistical significance. And in the meta-analysis, as you would expect, the effect is still positive, similar size, but confidence in it or the uncertainty around it uh, basically shrinks, right? And so it's, it's a shift comparable to what we saw in sort of the Estonian studies, the Swedish studies, but in this case, relative to uh, the other two categories, this, you know, describing attributes that makes one Latinx actually leads people to report more liberalized gender attitudes and uh, more positive attitudes and feelings toward LGBTQ communities. So again, it's like the, like the, the, the discussion or the implication section to that article, I remember writing because I thought like, this isn't really about Latinx, this is about let people 
police their own group, right? Like, you know, like essentially it's okay if you don't want to use it. Um, what these individuals are sort of engaged in is what is the content of who we are? And in fact, actually, I don't use the term for myself. I still use Latino or if I need to be more specific, I say I'm Mexican-American. But, you know, it's, it, you know, this is sort of the other side of, of me, like the work on intergroup relations. It's like it's such an important part of inter and intragroup life. And I just feel like, why, why do the loudmouths have to have sort of the, the, the end all be all? You're like, I can tell you, like, I'm not going to use it for myself. But if someone assigns it to me, yeah, I'm going to embrace it, you know. Um, the funny thing is we actually asked in that study whether people were familiar with the term. And there were individuals who said that they were unfamiliar or had never heard of it. And even among those individuals, the, the same sort of pattern stands, right? So the, the, the label is in circulation. We sort of like, we like to think that we're resisting it by voicing opposition, but the reality is you have fragments in your head, you sort of know what it means. And if we're able to prime it in a systematic way, yeah, it's gonna it's gonna matter. At the end of the day, it's just another entry in people's identity portfolio. They can be Latinx, Latino, Hispanic, they can be so many other things. It's just like all of all this is evidence for is that it's a meaningful category consistent with its alleged nature. It's not even telling you that it's normatively pleasing in all aspects, it's just this one particular thing seems to be very important for individuals um, who choose this label. This is so, we are running short on time, but I could talk to you forever because <laughs> all of this stuff is so interesting to me. Um, so just as wrap up, I, I just want to say thank you so much for taking yeah, the time to talk about this. Uh, and, and the book is so great. Like I, I wanted to tell you too that um, – for as academic as it is, I just really enjoyed re the writing was just very engaging and fun. And yeah, that means a lot because there's a, you know, if you like books like that, there's two, there's two individuals that I've always looked up to that are able to convey really thorny stuff in ways that like, you don't want to put the book down. That's Don Kinder, who's actually a, he's actually a social psychologist who made his career in political science. And the other one is actually one of his known nemesis, which is uh, Paul Snyderman at Stanford. Those guys, like, holding constant whatever you may think about their claim, they, they write in very, very entertaining ways. And it's not, like, annoying. It's just like, wow, <laughs> this is good stuff, you know? Um, so, yeah, no, that it, it, like, that's the fun part about writing a book. You know, like, my favorite part in the research process is always this, um, communication part. It's like, you know, once you have the evidence or the data, like there's nowhere to go, right? Like you just kind of have to figure out what is the most coherent story here. Um, and that's always, that's always been the, the, the favorite part for me actually in the enterprise, the, maybe the design, definitely not the data analysis, you know, but when there's two people, it's like, well, you can't both be screwing it up, right? Like this was, <laughs> there seems to be some convergence of analysts. So, uh, but yeah, no, this was this was fun. This was, you know, you don't get very many opportunities to to talk about stuff like this. Yeah, well, it was great to talk to you. That'll do it for this one. Thank you so much to Dr. Perez for taking the time to talk about his work. The book is Voicing Politics, 
How Language Shapes Public Opinion by Efren Perez and his co-author Margit Tavitz. You can find links on the episode page to the book, to Efren's website, and to some papers they've published in places like, you know, PNAS and Journal of Politics, those little things, which are some of the foundation for the line of work they cover in the book. Okay, now here's where I ask you to make sure you're subscribed to Opinion Science to make sure you keep getting new episodes like this one. You can do that probably wherever you're listening to this now, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, whatever. Rate the show on Apple Podcasts if you can. Tell the world that you listen to and like the show and head to OpinionSciencePodcast.com for back episodes, transcripts, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I think that's it for me. I'll see you in a couple weeks for more Opinion Science. Bye-bye. <laughs>